Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. This is the song that doesn't end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friend. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was. And they'll continue singing it forever just because this it is the song that doesn't end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friend. That's enough, guys. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was. And they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song that doesn't end. How do I turn you off? Yes, it goes on and on, my friend. Okay, Some okay. I can't believe you guys. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, yes, I've had it. That's it. That's it. What are you doing? Some people started singing. What? What is this? Hey! No, no, this, no, no, this is the last time, right? This is it. This, this is it. This is it. This is the song that... Charlie, horse! No, no, stop, stop, stop. Charlie, stop. I want you to go away. Go away. And don't slam the... Door. Sawate. I'm your host, Stella. And this is Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 19 for April MMXI. Bad Girl to Oracle is brought to you by blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah 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 Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. Examples of the prices you may encounter are Batman, number 191 from 1967, in good condition for $11.05, and very good condition for $25.05. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Again, examples of the prices you may encounter are July's Batgirl number 22 and Birds of Prey number 13, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues 
or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Okay, so this is going to be probably a really quick episode. The following are by far the best appearances of Barbara Gordon from 1967 to 1971, and they really add to her characterization. So without further ado, just want to get into this really special highlight show. First up, we have Batman number 191, The Day Batman Sold Out came out in May 1967. Writer Gardner Fox, penciler Carmine Infantino, inker Murphy Anderson. Also included in this issue is Alfred's Mystery Menu. The quote I pulled out from this is, I'd sure like to have the hotline phone as a souvenir of my many pleasant associations with Batman. Batman has decided to give up being Batman and has decided to put up all his gizmos and gadgets for auction. Flashback. Ira Radon, while fighting Batman, is accidentally irradiated by an isotope, about as accidental as Batman throwing him into a radioactive chamber, and will die if he ever steals again. Stealing would set off a particular glandular reaction in his body, which his body just could not tolerate. He therefore plots to irradiate Batman, force him to give up crime fighting, and auction off his equipment. Batman makes his stunning announcement and all the world is abuzz. Dick Grayson, on his way home from school, hears a little of the rumor and believes that it has to be a trick. Upon asking Bruce about it, Bruce tells him that his statement speaks for itself and to go to his room and study. The next day at the auction, Batman gets rid of nearly everything, including his prized batarang, for nearly $10,000. Barbara Gordon goes to the auction with her father and silently wonders what this could mean for Batgirl. Meanwhile, the Penguin and Joker have mixed feelings about Batman's retirement, not knowing whether to rejoice in their freedom to rob without punishment or to cry, knowing it will no longer be fun without him. Back at home, Bruce Wayne thinks back to how he got to this point. It seems a strange ray of light had been following him on patrols and zapped his bat tools. Those very same tools were showing radiation when he went to inspect them. He then noticed a strange note on his car, which let him know that through the small doses of radiation attached to his bat weapons, Batman has absorbed just enough radioactivity to force him to obey this mysterious antagonist. If Batman does not give up crime fighting and auction off his possessions in public, he will be killed. It looks like Ira Radon has made good on his promises. Bruce Wayne puts on a clever disguise in order to pick up the batarang that he sold himself. Meanwhile, Radon is very interested to find out who bought all of the bat weapons, especially the 10K batarang. Radon shows up at the fake buyer's house, fights Batman encased in a mud costume, and accidentally kills himself in his own ray of light. Ray of radiation, rather. And yes, indeed, accidentally once again. Batman later apologizes to the public, Robin, and Alfred for lying, but explains that he wanted to keep everyone safe. The issue ends with Batman and Robin happily going off on patrol together. What I really liked about this issue is that Batman really shows his smarts. He knew that he would not be able to fight Radon head-on, but goes along with Radon's plan and then adopts an interesting disguise. And yes, it appears that the clay suit had a purpose after all. Batman explains that clay, when heated to 2,372 Fahrenheit, locks in radioactivity and then disposes of it. Could this be the origin of Clayface? Is Bruce Wayne really Clayface? Is Alfred really Dick Grayson's father? He also used special instruments that blind people use in order to see without eyes. It's okay if you don't understand it, folks, because Robin at least read about it in Life magazine, so it has to be real. 
Some interesting moments throughout the issue certainly would be Robin crying because Bruce spoke coldly to him, that's a jerk quote, and Bruce using a bat mirror in order to put makeup on. I don't make this stuff up. Apparently Robin, or I'm sorry, apparently Radon also invented a very special radioactive pen with which he may write on solid objects. This almost sounds like that time Supergirl wrote microscopically in cement in order to let Superman know that she had everything under control in Adventure Comics number 381. I enjoyed the scene with Penguin and Joker and thought it very apropos that both would not necessarily know how to feel about Batman's retirement. It definitely reminded me of the Batman the Animated Series episode, The Man Who Killed Batman. And just like Clark Gable removing his shirt and revealing no undershirt and it happened one night, which ended up causing a decline in men's undershirts, Batman's reveal of some sort of under armor is sure to have spiked sales. I was quite shocked to see someone die in this issue and Batman not really be affected by it. Batman seems upset when he, accidentally, throws Radon and, and gets him exposed to radiation. But, you know, Radon dies by his own hand. Batman just explains what happened, drinks a mojito, and calls it a day. I am, however, a little confused. Uh, you know, Princess Leia Babs only appears on page 5, panel 4. I mean, I was so sure that this was a landmark appearance. Oh, well, perhaps I was mistaken in this count. Uh, surely it's really, you know, the next issue that furthers Babs' characterization. Uh, I give this issue 6 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 375. The Frigid Finger of Fate came out in May 1968. Writer Gardner Fox, penciler Cheek Stone, and inker Sid Green. Also included in this issue is The Face That Stopped Clocks, starring the elongated man with an appearance by Sue Dibney. How sad. Dreams are rudiments of the great state to come. We dream what is about to happen. Bailey. B Bailey? I didn't even think he was alive back then. Well, actually, you know, it all really does make sense now. Now I understand how he can do about a bazillion podcasts. It's because he has been making these episodes since the late 60s. He must freeze himself at certain points each century in order to keep his health. Pete Maddox is almost ready to commit his most ambitious crime yet. The assassination of Batman, who is the guest of honor for a parade being held in his name. As he sets up for his shot, he recalls back to how he got to this point. Some time ago, the poor and destitute Maddox was living in a run-down flop house with no hot water and no heat. After a cold shower in the middle of winter, the freezing cold Maddox goes to sleep and dreams the result of a horse race, which to his surprise comes true the next day. Unable to pay the rent the next day, Maddox is thrown out into the street where he has to spend a cold winter night sleeping on a park bench. He has another dream where Batman stops a crook from robbing a candy store, and how Batman fails to turn up the stolen loot which was hidden in a nearby trash can. Waking up, he decides to see if this was also another true premonition, and to his surprise, he finds the money right where he dreamed it would be. Deciding that he is on to something, Maddox attempts to use the dreams for his own financial gain and goes to Gotham Library, where Barbara Gordon helps him read up on Onermancy. Soaking in an ice-cold bathtub, he learns how to pull off the perfect crime at the Gotham Diamond Exchange and escape before Batman and Robin show up. Gathering a group of crooks, they go to rob the Diamond Exchange and are followed by the arrival of Batman and Robin. Pete manages to escape without being seen by the dynamic duo. Maddox realizes that he had not foreseen Batman and Robin's involvement and realizes that things go wrong when he speaks aloud what he has dreamed about. 
After spending the night sleeping on a block of ice, Maddox has his dream about assassinating Batman, which brings him to the present. Before he can pull the trigger, the crooks that were captured in the diamond heist catch up with him. When Maddox blurts out that he was trying to kill Batman, the Cape Crusader storms onto the scene and beats up the crooks and saves Maddox's life. Unaware of what Maddox's intentions were, Batman lets his attempted assassin go. Maddox then decides to try and dream up a new assassination plot against Batman. A few days later, Dick Grayson shows Bruce Wayne a strange newspaper story about Maddox, telling how he met a tragic fate when he paid a butcher $100 to sleep in a meat cooler and froze to death. You know, while this issue did come out six years later, I can't help thinking of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You know, those panels showing Maddox on the, the roof overlooking the parade really resemble scenes from that fateful day back in 1963. This was uh, an interesting issue. You know, it's just strange to imagine someone going to such lengths in order to have a prophetic dream. At one point, Maddox is shown on a bed of ice. Who would do that? And I don't know about you, but there certainly is a point for me where it's just too cold for me to sleep. To sleep. I suppose we could liken Maddox and his dreams to the oracles in ancient times, who would basically get high off of noxious gases, uh, be possessed by a god, and then give a very ambiguous response. You have to go milk a cow, but that cow may not actually be a cow. It could be, I don't know, a cat, something like that. We could also liken it to the TV show Alias, where the evil Sloan injected his daughter, Nadia, with a serum which would put her into a fit and then she would basically write a prophecy about Rimbaldi. I think his dream had to have a safety, though. The whole telling people about it would make it untrue. Or else Maddox, I think, would, would have been unstoppable. It seemed like so abrupt an ending. If you think about it, we spent the majority of the issue in a backflash. Then we are back in the present. Maddox's goons try to kill him. Batman saves Maddox, which is unbelievable in the first place because I don't really think that Batman would have seen three men out of thousands of spectators walk into a building. Uh, but then he ends up letting Maddox go. We then end the entire issue with Dick explaining to Bruce that the man he saved died in a meat locker. Once again, we have a sudden death that seems to cut the issues short. But really, you know, the most important thing is that Babs is in this issue, right? But wait, once again, I'm a little confused. She was only on page 8, panel 1, explaining to Maddox was what Oneromancy was. Oh dear, I hardly recognize her, what with her cinnamon bun hair and the name placard that says Miss Gordon. I really don't know what's going on here. I need to talk to Kimberly Rockmore about these notes. I give this issue 7 out of 10 bats. Okay, well, as I try to wrap my head around this and probably fire my uh, my co-anchor and, and, and news correspondent, I'm going to take a short break and return with my final two reviews. So please stay tuned, bear with me. And you can always count on having a fun day when you spend it with the people you love. <laughs> I love you, you love me, we're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? <laughs> I love you, you love me We're best friends like friends should be With a great big hug and a kiss from me to you Won't you 
Oh my gosh, things are just not going right. I am so sorry that that happened. I don't know how that song came on here. Okay, well, let's just try to forget it and move on. My next review is World's Finest number 189, The Man with Superman's Heart. came out in November 1969. Writer Carrie Bates, pencil Ross Andrew, and inker Mike Esposito. The story begins with an unconscious Superman crashing to Earth like a meteor. After the Man of Steel is lifted from the pit, a physician examines Superman and says that he is dead. Word of Superman's demise spreads around the world. Even Nixon comes on TV to talk about it. And millions lower their flags and shake their heads in disbelief. Even his friends at the Daily Planet cannot believe that Superman is gone. As the world tries to come to grips with their lost hero, Batman arrives with an envelope containing Superman's last wishes. Looks like at his last trip to the DMV, he became an organ donor. Superman's body is taken to a secret facility quickly, and his various parts are to be harvested and given to deserving individuals. Batman is chosen to house the heart of Superman. As the harvesting is ready to begin, Supergirl flies in with special instruments that Superman designed to be used after his death. It seems that these laser tools emit a surgical beam filtered through a tiny kryptonite crystal, which can cut through Superman's impenetrable skin. Batman explains to the surgeons that he's not worthy to receive the heart and that it must wait until someone is found who deserves it. He then goes about setting up the funeral for such a great hero. Now, despite his protestations, the operation proceeds for 11 hours. The doctors lay out all the parts and show them to Batman and Supergirl. Later in the day, many heroes gather for Superman's funeral, Batgirl included, and thus ends Part 1. Part 2. After the burial of the body, Lex Luthor arrives in the dead of night to visit his former enemy's grave, remarking that he feels cheated to never get his final revenge on Superman. That's when Motan the Ruthless arrives to gloat about killing Superman. Backflash. As Motan and Superman duke it out, Motan ends up shocking Superman with an electroplasmic charge which has a delayed effect. While Superman's powers would return, he would most likely be flying over Metropolis by the time he did. Well, looky here, he was. Motan reveals information about the harvested Kryptonian parts, causing Luther to devise a secondary plan for his long-deferred vengeance. While Batman and Robin are distracted from their mourning by the actions of the notorious Big Four Syndicate, a crime family who have united various other gangs into a nationwide band of baddies, Lex Luthor swoops in and steals Superman's dissected pieces. Wanting to finally be rid of his life as a pauper, Lex sets about selling Superman's body parts to the highest bidder. This auction, just like the auction Batman held, is a huge success, and a mysterious bidder manages to gather all the Superman parts for himself, before revealing the true source of his funding. The leaders of the Big Four Syndicate want to be superpowered. Hands, eyes, ears, and lungs all go to these evildoers. But where's the heart? It seems Luther is keeping it as a keepsake, a constant reminder of his final victory over Superman. And when he finds someone he truly trusts, he will have it transplanted inside his own body. Until then, he will most likely hang it on his Christmas tree each year. What happens next? Yeah, I actually have no idea. This story continues on in World's Finest number 190, which has no appearance of Batgirl, uh, so I can't help you there. This was actually a really disturbing story. We not only have Superman's organs being harvested, but then we have those very same organs being sold, eBay style, by Lex Luthor. 
Then Lex Luthor becomes some Vincent Price crazy person and keeps the heart in a jar. I mean, if you're wondering about the macabre factor here, look no further than on page 6 in the room with all the organs. It is a completely blacked out panel with word balloons and a warning that says, This scene censored by the Comics Code Authority. Now, whether they really stepped in and censored this, or the editor did it to make kitty imaginations run wild, who knows. In any case, it's quite disturbing. I have to wonder why all the Daily Planet lackeys are so concerned about Superman, but don't wonder about Clark Kent. I mean, if Superman has been dead for one month and Clark Kent hasn't come in, are they not concerned that maybe some terrible mugging has happened to the the, the guy with glasses that falls a lot? I, I don't know. I also wonder how those goons that received the transplants did not reject the body parts. You know, just because someone received hands doesn't mean they will have superpowers in those hands. Plus, that person would have had to have his hands cut off before he could get Superman's hands. That's gross, gross. You know, I just watched a movie, Never Let Me Go, and it was based on a book. Uh, and it was about these children that are born or grown for the express purpose of being donors. They go through as many donations as possible before they die, or is what they call it, uh, complete. You know, the question throughout the movie was, were they human beings with a soul or just things with one purpose in life? And I thought, wow, this movie is really fitting with this comic here. But you know, all is not lost, friends. Batgirl is found on the bottom panel of page 6. Luckily for us, she receives about a square inch of panel space at the funeral. Yay. 5 out of 10 bats, purely for the weirdness factor. And as my final review, Detective Comics number 415, Challenge of the Consumer Crusader, Please, God, let this have an awesome appearance, or Kimberly, she's going to be biting the dust. September 1971, writer Frank Robbins, penciler Bob Brown, and inker Dick Giordano. Also included in this issue are Death Shares a Spotlight, The Forbidden Trick, and The Case of the Finder's Keepers. First, a jackknife rear somersault to counteract the downward force. And by freeing my body of contact with the crashing car, a 50-50 chance of survival, the issue opens with Batman watching a couple of sanitary engineers from above. He is waiting until they make their move, which happens to be attacking a man who parks behind them, and then nearly shredding that guy. Batman stops them, but is almost shredded himself before the innocent bystander helps him out. As Batman drives the man away to a safe place, he discovers that it is Tom Carson, the leader of Carson's Consumer Commandos. His job is to debunk the flawless products of any industry. While there are many people who would want him dead, it seems that the next industry to get tests will be Magna Industries. Batman drops Carson off on the doorstep of Babs Gordon, where Babs answers in a nightgown and hair rollers. Batman continues to Ben Ames's place, the president of Magna Industries. Calling Ames via Carson's car phone, he impersonates the contract killers and discovers that Ames hired them. Before arresting Ames, Batman decides to find out his motive. Using a clever Scooby-Doo device, which involves makeup, putty, phosphorescent spray, and Carson's clothes, Batman pretends to be the ghost of Carson and frightens Ames into talking about an extortion racket operating under the consumer commandos. Not knowing what to think about this latest intrigue, Batman decides to pay a visit to Carson's research test grounds. Once there, he discovers that Joan Wilde, the lab director, was blackmailing Ames. As Batman bursts in, he is spotlighted in psychedelic lighting, undergoes stress, strain, and crush tests, and later acts as a crash test dummy for a falling car. 
Luckily, he survives, catches Joan Wilde, and we again see Babs in her evening wear when Batman picks Carson up. This issue, like others that I have countered, encountered in the Silver Age, is somewhat confusing. There's so many things going on, so many accusations being thrown, that my brain was just not set right until the final panel. Why Batman rides around in Carson's car for the entire issue is beyond me. I'm surprised he did not go home and get in his Batmobile that I feel would have alleviated some stress. And speaking of stress, did you know that the formula to calculate stress is P over A, or force over area, and strain is delta L, or the change in L over L? Yeah, that's what you learn in structures, friends. Now, I don't know whether to laugh or grumble at the trick that Batman pulled, uh, dressing up like a dead man. It really did seem like something out of Scooby-Doo. I find it a little odd that at the end, Batman called Ames 100% honest. When Ames was the one who placed a contract on Carson's head, is, is that an honest person in your opinion? It's also a little unbelievable that Batman survived a fall inside of a car, even with his somersaults. You know, let's be honest, he should have a bit more than a ripped cape. But if you ever decide to read this issue, I seriously suggest reading it in color rather than a showcase because when Batman is being attacked at the testing site, it is really trippy with all the colors. And you know, let me not forget Babs. We learned so much about her right here. Why, you know, on page 6, the third panel, and page 15, the final panel, we see how she gets ready for bed. We also learn that she is not afraid to answer the door without checking who it is first. Damn it, woman, when are you going to learn? I give this issue 7 out of 10 bats. If you want your head to twist and turn, then I suggest reading this. Well, that is all I have for you. Send any questions or comments to batgirltooracle at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at batgirltooracle. Continue to sign that wonderful petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Tune in again later this month for a return to our regular program. Happy April Fool's Day. Fly on, Bats lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?